title of my message, a little bit edgy. Discipleship is not dieting. You go, what in the world does that mean? Dieting is a huge industry in our culture. Would you agree? Five million dieting books sold every year, $60 billion industry. So I read this article randomly. I don't know how I even read these things sometimes. They just come to me, I guess. Um, it was a, a study that was done by the researchers at UCLA in Los Angeles about dieting. And to, their study was, and this is recent now, this isn't a long time ago, this is this year. Their study was to figure out if dieting actually worked. Because it's such a big industry, there's so many dieting books and fads, right? How many have seen at least 10 in your lifetime? Like way, way, way. Every year there's new. There's five new ones because the books sell like hotcakes because dieting is a big deal. And let me just say this when we're talking about dieting. This obviously isn't the point of the message. It's just a segue into what I want to talk about. But if you have skinny jeans, take your self-righteous card and put it back in your pocket because the reality is there's a lot of people that are a lot bigger than you that probably exercise twice as much self-control as you do. So the Lord's not impressed that you're thin. <laughs> He's about heart image and not body image, okay? Uh, so, so let's just put that out on the table. Put your self-righteous card in your pocket, and when you go home, cut it in pieces and burn it. Because, okay, he, does, he doesn't want it. Um, so they ask, they're asking, does the evidence show that dieting really works? And here's their conclusion. I'll just cut to the chase with the summary. Most people would have been better off, I'm quoting them now, most people would have been better off not going on a diet at all. At least two-thirds of people on diets regain more weight than they lose within four or five years. This may help explain why so many diets fail. Dieting increases stress sensitivity. This is kind of interesting. And stress makes us seek out rewarding things like high-fat, high-calorie comfort foods. Can anybody say amen? <laughs> Dieting is tough. Listen to this last statement. This is, this, I'm quoting the secular people now. Sometimes God speaks through donkeys. Um, that's my hope every time I preach. Um, dieting is tough because your brain is working against you. There's a mindset about dieting that works against us as far as the lifestyle change. This is what I wrote down, and this is my segue into talking about discipleship. Dieting often fails because we insist on it being relatively painless, convenient, and temporary. The Western church is weak for the same reason. We have a diet-based Christianity rather than a complete radical lifestyle change. Disciple-like culture is largely powerless. In contrast, turn in your Bible, if you have it, or your phone, Matthew 13. In contrast, consider what Jesus says it means to follow him. This is why I say that discipleship is not dieting. It's not going to be relatively painless. It's not going to be easy, temporary, it's going to be a radical lifestyle change. I read an article recently from world leaders and churches around the world, not from America, not from Western countries, but from 
countries like China, countries away from here. And they, the title of the article is, Why the American Church is So Weak. And their conclusion was, essentially what we're talking about here, is that everything has to be painless, comfortable, and temporary as far as the buy-in of the all-in is, is missing, largely. We have become, again, I'm not all negative, so don't get that. I'm just trying to set the stage here and talk about what, what the real is. We, we have a culture in a church culture in the West. It's in America in particular. Let's, let's own it, okay? It's true. We're spectator religion. We want to have somebody that can come up that can really wow us and really do it and really has the charisma and can really entertain us and tell us great stories. And we go, oh, I just felt great afterwards. And the reality is that people don't remember what you say. They remember how you make them feel. You ever heard that? That's real. And so this is how we build, and this is how the seeker-friendly movement came, and we turned it exactly upside down instead of saying, Jesus, this is your house. Now it's our house, and so come. We want to have God come and entertain us, and we want to have God come and fix our stuff, and we want to have God come and do the things that we want him to do, and we come based on felt needs, and that's how we build programs in the church around felt needs. And, and, and that's completely upside down. Am I saying none of that should happen? No. What I'm saying is if that's the heart and core and soul and core of what we're building, we're building something that God's not going to inhabit. And the goal of the church, if you read Ephesians chapter 2 at the end, that God is building us as a household where he can build his permanent habitation. He wants to dwell here in permanence. Not just visit occasionally and bless and sprinkle little blessing drops on people at the altar. I love the encounters with the Lord. Y'all get used to me. I'm a little edgy. Nice to meet you. Um, things come out sometimes, and I, I don't mean it to be edgy, but I do mean it to be provocative. One of the things the Lord is trying to do in his church in America is to take a stake and drive it through the heart of spectator Christianity, to come to hear and be entertained and not to be a participant that takes the grace and the gift that he's given to you and build up somebody else. So when we come together, we should always be thinking these three things, building, 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 building people. We're here because we have a grace and we, we need to build each other. Jesus said that the graces that he's given us, if we're good stewards of them, this is 1 Peter 4, verse 10, be good stewards of the grace that God has given you by employing that in serving one another. Building, building, building. He wants to have a culture where we're building. Blesses me. See you guys in the time of sharing where you're praying for each other. This is the way it should be. So if you've been a spectator, you're for your whole Christian life, or this is kind of new, then I want to shift the paradigm for you that God is calling you to take the grace that he's deposited in you, and not to bury it in the sand, but to take it and to use it to be a blessing to somebody else. This is how the body of Christ flourishes, and this is what invites and attracts the presence of the living God. This is what we want to do. Matthew 13, verse 44 to 46 I think is one of the clearest 
explanations of the gospel. Here it is. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and again hid. And for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. Verse 45, and again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. This is the way the gospel is. What is the treasure? I want to submit to you that the treasure is Jesus Christ himself. And when we see him for who he really is and recognize his worthiness and his value, we joyfully go and sell everything that we have. Like, how is that? We forget about the joyful part. And, and I want to put this out there first because when we talk about discipleship, we have to talk about obedience because Jesus talked about obedience. We have to talk about being all in and all in commitment because Jesus talked about that. We have to talk about if your eye offends you, don't put a patch over it. Put your two fingers behind your eyeball and rip it out of your head. Or if your hand offends you, don't put a glove on it, but take a hatchet and cut your hand off. That's radical. There's something about discipleship that's very radical. But here's the thing that we have to realize. The treasure is so great that everything that's a sacrifice is turned into joy. I heard David Livingstone, if you don't know who he was, a missionary to Africa where he went there before. There was no missionary. There was no gospel there. He blazed the trail literally and cut through the swaths of jungle to get to people to talk to them about Jesus and to learn their language. And he suffered a lot. He came back to England to try to stir in Cambridge the college students to give their life for the cause of missions. And in his speech, it's just so profoundly powerful. He said, some people say that I've suffered. And I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, there's inconveniences, and there's things that we've given up, and there's times where we felt lack. But think about the treasure and the power and the beauty of who Jesus is and what he's given for us. This is, counts as nothing, and I count myself to as never suffered at all. I'm like, dude, I better do an adjustment inside of me. Because <laughs> I feel like I've given up a few things, but it is nothing. Here's the reality. The more we see the glory, the beauty, the amazing grace of Jesus, the treasure, the easier it gets to release everything. Then it's not hard. If it's hard for us and if we chafe under going through a hard time, it's because we don't see the treasure very clearly. This is the heart of discipleship. This is the engine that motivates us to be able to do the things that he calls us to do. There is a sacrifice. But in every hard decision, Jesus is asking this question. Have you really seen the treasure? Have you really seen it? No, because you wouldn't be chafing over this relatively little thing if you had actually seen the treasure. You for joy would go, <laughs> go to the bank. Give me everything I got here, 100%. You take it, the treasure. Like, it is worth so much more than anything that we have. Y'all, we don't have very much. If you're Donald Trump, you don't have very much. 
You don't see U-Hauls behind hearses, do you? Donald Trump is not going to take one stinking thing with him when he dies. Not one. All of his closets that are full of $2,000 suits, somebody else is going to get those. All of his jewelry that he has, that's worth maybe millions of dollars, somebody else is going to get that. They're going to go through his stuff, and they're going to go, here, who wants to have this? He's not going to have one bit of it. But you can send it. You can send it by releasing it to Jesus for his purposes. I'm getting into middle age now. At our church, whenever they say, how many young adults we have here? I always raise my hand. (laughs) I'm still young. But I'm getting closer to heaven, and I'm super excited about it. I told the Lord, he spared my life multiple times, but I told the Lord, I'm ready to come because when... When I leave this body, I'm going to get my heart's desire. And y'all, I hate to tell you this, but I probably won't even remember your name. Um, My heart is going to be exploding with joy when I see Jesus face to face. But I want to finish my course, and I want to lay everything out on the field. I want to leave it all on the field. I don't want Jesus to say to me, what did you do with this or what did you do with that? I want him to go, it's all out there, spread out on the field. Everything that you've given me, I want to pour it out. I want to be a blessing to your people and to your body, and I want to honor you with my life, that it was offered to you in completion. Every hard decision, he asks us the question, have you really seen the treasure? Do you really see that I'm worthy? It's a mistake for us to focus on the sacrifice and on the commitment. Do do you know what we call people who focus on their commitment to Jesus and that becomes their identity? We call them Pharisees. Lord, I thank you that I'm not like this man. I tithe of everything I have down to the flakes of pepper. I fast twice a week. I don't drink. But yeah, here's the man. God, forgive me. I'm so sorry. I want to be right with you. And Jesus said, that man went away justified. And that man went away with his sin. It's always a mistake to focus on how dedicated and elite we are so i encourage you because you guys are moving somewhere here that is going to be viewed as different um for sure and it's going to be viewed as being special because i think it is special what the lord's doing here but if, if you take that as a point of we're the elite we're the green beret then you're going to find the lord resisting you I don't know if you've ever known this in your life, but I've had times in my life where I just felt the Lord was resisting me. Like he didn't like what I was doing. Like, and I almost felt like he didn't really like me that much because I, I was an idiot. <laughs> I had a time in my life where I was praying. I thought, I thought, man, I've got it going on here. Like we're praying and reading the word and just fasting and seeking God and witnessing on Friday nights, going out of the street and all that kind of stuff. And I was praying one time and the Holy Spirit spoke to me so clearly. And he said to me, 
I've got people in every part of my body that love me more than you do. I was like, I said, Lord, I would have done lip service to that, but that really hurt when you said that. It's like there's arrogance inside of you that you think you're the elite. And you don't realize that whatever is good inside of you has come as a grace gift from me anyway. You didn't make it. Here's here's the delusion that we get in sometimes, especially in charismatic circles. And I'm one of them. I've been one of them. I'll go to my grave as speaking in tongues. I'll always be charismatic. But we get this delusion that we've done things ourselves and we take ownership like the gifts that we have that God's given us that we somehow made those ourselves. Here's what Paul asked the Corinthians who were very happy about their gifts and very proud. 1 Corinthians 4 verse 7, he says, so what do you have that you haven't received? This is a really tough question from a good lawyer. What do you have that you haven't received? Answer, nothing. Well, then if you've received it as a gift, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? Oh, I'm a prophet. I've got this prophetic gift. That's great. What are you doing with it is the question. You have a bigger stewardship. If God has given you the gift to make wealth and you have the gift of giving, the question is not how big of a house you have. The question is what are you doing with that thing to further the purposes of God? And if you're not furthering the purposes of God, then we're being unfaithful with the thing that he gave us. And we're going to give account for that. I don't get very many amens when I preach. (laughs) Flip back to Matthew chapter 10. We're talking about discipleship. Just trying to lay a little groundwork here. Matthew chapter 10, verse 37 through 39. So good. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. That's so sobering. Can we just breathe in the words of Jesus together and go, oh my goodness. What he's telling us is the worth of who he is so far surpasses everything else that we value. And if we don't see it that way, we're deceived. This is hard. I agree. I love my parents, but I think I could go with that. I definitely love Jesus more than my parents. In Luke 14, he goes even on a deeper list. Your wife, your children, I'm like, even your own life. This is hard. If you don't hate, he says in, in Luke 14, the way he puts it, if you don't hate your father, mother, brothers, sisters, wife, children, even your own life, I start to squirm there. I love my wife. I love my seven children. I got 14 grandchildren, y'all, but we're going to get 25 by the grace of God. (laughs) When I get down to that, here's the thing. When we get in a place where it pinches what the Lord is asking, my oldest daughter named Shana, from the time she was a little girl, I always called her dear. She was my little, little sweetheart. 
Well, they're dearest. When she got older, she said to me one day, Dad, I feel like the Lord's calling me in the mission field. I feel like I'm supposed to go to the Dominican Republic and, and, and minister there. And I was like, okay, praise God. I'm proud of you. So she went to Sasua in the DR, and she was working there with a, a mission and a ministry, and we went over there for the first time, and we toured Sasua, and it is a center for sex trafficking for young girls. The Russian mafia basically owns it. They have a palace on top of the hill that looks like a Taj Mahal kind of thing with walled and barbed wire gates all around it when you drive up to it. And the one guy there was taking us on a tour. He goes, you know what that is? I said, I have no idea. That looks like more money than is in the whole country. It's right there. Helicopter pads on there and everything. He says, it's a brothel for world leaders. They fly them over here, and they bring in the young girls from the DR, and they traffic them to world leaders from Spanish-speaking countries. We drove down through the city. Everybody else lived in squalor. The creeks, the rivers that run through the city, dirty diapers, feces going down there. I'm like, my wife and I, when we toured the city that day, this is literally true, we went back to the room that we were staying in. And we got down, we were shell-shocked. My little dearest! She's getting ready to get married and live over there with her husband. We got down on our knees beside our bed and we wept. I said, God, what in the world? My grandkids are going to be raised in a city. You see walking down the streets 18-year-olds with 65-year-old guys from Spain and from other Spanish-speaking countries. That's heartbreaking. And the thing that's so heartbreaking is the parents down there are good with it because they think maybe their young daughter will find some rich old guy from Spain and he'll marry her and then she'll get out of the poverty of the DR. So the parents actually promote it. Makes it really hard to fight. They own entire apartment complexes there that every room all they do is traffic girls. They advertise openly in public and on the internet. If you want a good, hot 18-year-old girl from the DR, come and come to this apartment complex. It's tragic. We saw this, and we were like, whew, got down on my knees. My little dearest, what in the world? And we had to lay it out there again. Because here's the thing about being a disciple. Jesus isn't playing. He's telling you the truth that everything is his even your little dearest. And so we said, Jesus, we re-up. We told you when this girl was born that she belonged to you. I know all the parents in here have said that. We dedicate them to the Lord. Lord Jesus, they're yours. But I can tell you from personal experience, he comes to collect. He goes, okay, if they're mine, then release them to me. Because the kingdom of God is a spirit of release. We release as disciples. We release everything to Jesus. We release it to him. Because it doesn't belong to us anyway. Because he takes ownership of us, right? You're not your own. Ever read that in the Bible? You've been bought with a price. The precious blood of Jesus. Therefore, glorify God in your body. With whatever you have. The goal of life is to glorify God with what we have. I was telling the guys yesterday morning, I have a one-question test because it keeps everything simple. 
What in this situation can I do? How should I act in this situation that is going to most highly honor the Lord Jesus? Then I know what to do. I know what to do. That's the easy one-question test. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. This is, the, this is the paradox of the kingdom. But I can tell you, this is where power comes in Christianity. We want the Lord to show up in power. We want the Lord to transform our lives and to do all of these things. And he's asking us all along, like, do, do, do you not remember the first deal that we made? The first deal that we made wasn't, God, I'll come to you and you fix all my stuff and then leave me alone. The deal was everything that I am and everything that I have and all of my future plans, all of my ambitions, they're yours. That's why James says in chapter 4, you businessmen who go on and say, hey, you've got your big five-year plan of how you're going to do it. We're going to do this. We're going to go here. We're going to build this, and we're going to do that. Hey, listen, the scripture says that all such boasting, it doesn't say it's stupid. It says it's evil. It's evil. Why? Because you're taking ownership of what belongs to God. And you're telling him what's going to happen with it. That kind of presumption is just evil. How many of y'all are okay? Are you okay? This is what discipleship means. And you can see why in the countries where they're persecuted. So we have a disadvantage in America. We're too rich. We have too much spare time and we have too much entertainment. And it's killing us. It's killing us as believers. We're so distracted. We're so addicted to so many different things that we can't focus on the one thing that matters. If we kept looking at the treasure and how valuable, how precious and how magnificent it is to where it dwarfs everything else in our life, it would make living for Jesus a whole lot easier. Lord, I don't have time to read my Bible because there's a good show on. distracted by so many things we have to be honest y'all we have to be honest with the things that distract us and dull our sense of God John Wesley one of my heroes in the church history when he went to college at 13 years old he already knew Greek and Latin he was homeschooled his mama, Susanna, had nine and ten children. One of them died along the way. They had one room that they hung in. The dad wasn't there a lot. He was in prison at different times. So she basically held the fort together. She, what a warrior. When she had time of prayer, she would sit in her rocker, and she'd pull her apron up over her head. And the kids knew when mama's got the apron over her head, she's in the temple with God. You don't bother her. She prayed and sought God. So when John went to college at 13, went to Oxford, he wrote a letter to his mom and he said, Mom, what kinds of things? I'm going to encounter all kinds of different scenarios. What, what kind of things are legitimate pastimes and what kind of things should I stay away from? He's just asking her advice. So she writes him back and she, she says this in essence. Be honest with yourself. Whatever 
dulls your sense of spiritual things and diminishes your hunger for God and causes you to be distracted from the things that God has put in your life and called you to do. Those things are sin to you no matter how legitimate they may be to somebody else because it's hindering your purpose and your destiny. And we should be as honest as that and say, look, let's take inventory of the stuff in our life. You know, I'm meddling now, but it's okay. I want to. Um, we should take inventory of the things in our life that actually dull our relationship with God and make us spiritually dense. And we should say, you know what? That's not worth it. Look at the treasure. Look at the treasure. There's nothing that can compare with the treasure. That's what disciples do. We measure everything by the worthiness of Jesus and by whether it's going to honor him or not. It's what real disciples do. This is hard for us in America because we have so many things that distract us. This is a real thing. And so we have to, we have to be honest, though. So many strugglers that I have talked to, and I do quite a bit of counseling through the week, as you might imagine, at our church body, it's because they feed the flesh so much that they can't have spiritual life. Feeding the flesh constantly suffocates the life of God in us. Then we come to church and we get revved up and we get focused again. And then we go back into our old patterns of just feeding, feeding, feeding the flesh. I wish I had them with me, but I had a sermon that I did recently just about sowing and reaping. And I had a, a bag of, you know, popcorn before it's popped. You see that illustration? And I just start throwing it on the ground. Like, we're sowing in a field. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever. He's telling this to Christians now. He's just given them the gospel of grace in the book of Galatians, right? He's told them you're not under the law of Moses. You're free now, but there is the law of Christ. But he said, don't, don't be deceived. Don't think that you can run wild now and do anything and it's okay with God. It's not. You're still going to reap what you sow. And so if we're sowing seeds into the field of our own flesh, what are we going to reap? He says you're going to reap corruption. And the Greek word there is really ugly word. It's the word for a decaying corpse. It stinks. It's awful. If that's what you keep sowing into then that's what you're going to reap. But if you sow to the Holy Spirit, sow to the things that enhance your relationship, your connection, your reliance upon the Holy Spirit, you're going to reap eternal life. There's so many edgy things in the Bible. I, I read them sometimes and I laugh out loud and my wife goes, why, why are you laughing at I go, he, he said that out loud like to people. This is crazy. But he cares about us and he wants our freedom. And like the rich young ruler, right? Jesus relentlessly pursues the things in our life that keep us from him. We say, God, I want to get closer to you. And we cry tears that are real. And we worship and we say, please draw me close. And he goes, okay. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And this guy's sincere. And Jesus, the good physician, he sees into the heart. He's the heart doctor. He says, your, your problem is you've got an idol. It's your stuff. And it's keeping you from what I have for you. 
So here's, here's the remedy. It's radical, but it's real and it's freeing. Give everything that you've got away. Cut the tie from the things that became an idol in your heart, and then you'll have eternal life. Follow me. Sometimes the truth really, really, really hurts. What happened? So, so question. Can we measure whether something's true or not by how it makes us feel? So we should get over that, right? We should get over that. Because how did that man feel when Jesus, that, I love Luke's account because Luke said Jesus looked at that man and loved him. And then he spoke the words of truth. Do you agree that Jesus both loved him and spoke truth to him? But what was his emotional reaction? He went away grieving. And Jesus turned to his disciples and said, how hard it is for the rich to inherit the kingdom. Because it's so easy for their stuff to get a grip on their heart and to pull them down and pull them away from the thing that I have for them. Listen, it's not worth it. If God's given you the ability to make wealth, then he's going to give you grace to not let that have a grip on your heart. And the way that he does that is that he causes you to keep sowing like this. And you keep sowing and you keep sowing and you keep sowing your finances. I like what C.S. Lewis says. He goes, the only safe rule for us is that we should always give more than we can afford. And if we make a certain amount of money and we live on the same standard of living as other people who make the same amount of money, then we're being actually unfaithful with our money. We should deny ourselves some things that we want to do and could do with the money that we had, but we didn't because we chose to sow it into eternity rather than into our own flesh. That's really good, right? It's not easy to live. It's easy to say amen to. That's true. That's, that's a real thing. So listen, we have to be honest as Americans with the things that we face. If you're in another country, you don't face the same temptations that we face. We face a continual dullness because of the barrage of distractions that we allow and welcome into our life. And they're out there. And we have to try to minimize that and Take time to focus on the treasure and then the things that we release to the Lord and give to him. And if it's sacrificial, it's okay because it doesn't compare with the treasure at all. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you might recall his name. He wrote a book called Call to Discipleship. It's one of the most influential books in Christian history. I read a list a little while ago that was number 13 on their list, but it's a very influential book. Bonhoeffer was a theologian in Germany during World War II. He wrestled in a great way with what to do about Hitler. And he had a job at New York University teaching theology. He could have stayed in the States forever, but he felt like the Lord called him to go back to Germany. And so he went back to Germany, and he was working with the resistance to try to get Hitler out of power and three months before the war was over, they, they traced him down. They chased him down, and he was hung in a prison camp. He was engaged to be married, and he died in his 40s. Is that a tragedy? No. A tragedy is a life that's spent on trivial 
entertainment that has zero value at all. That's a tragedy, even if it lives 90 years old. That's a tragedy. It's not a tragedy to spend your life for Jesus and to pour your life out in for eternal things that are going to matter. That's not a tragedy, even if you're younger. Because y'all look, no matter how old we live, it's, it, it's, it's gone like that. It's so fast. Now I sound like an old fogey. It's a real thing, though. You look back over your life and you go, where did it go? It's just, right? How, how quick? They're going to have a memorial service for me before too much longer. I mean, maybe it's 20 years. I hope it is. Actually, I really don't. I don't care. I just want to finish my course. I just want to stand before Jesus and him say to me, you did, you did what I wanted you to do. So proud of you. Dude, that's all that matters to me. That's all that matters. I want to miss my wife terribly. I'm going to miss my kids. But when I see Jesus, I probably won't. I just feel bad for them. They'll miss me. <laughs> um, we're, we're living for eternity. That's what disciples of Jesus do. We live for eternity. And so the easiest way to get clarity for us is to analyze what we're doing that is actually sowing into eternity versus what we're doing that's sowing into our own flesh because that's all going to perish. I'm, I'm meddling a little bit. In every sacrifice that we have to offer, Jesus asks whether we have really seen his worth or not. It's small. Everything's small compared to the treasure. So discipleship is really about seeing the worthiness of Jesus. Here's my, here's my definition of discipleship. It's living every day in the light of the worthiness of Jesus. Living every day in the light of the worthiness of Jesus. His worthiness is what drives us. It's what motivates. It's what fills us with joy. Like if we get the gospel right, we should be the most joyful people ever in the world, right? Because if, if you're Paul and you've suffered like he suffered and you can say with reality that the light momentary afflictions that I've experienced are not even worthy to put, be put on the same scale as the eternal weight of glory that's going to be revealed in us, then you're living your life. This dude suffered, right? The hallmark of his apostolic ministry was that he suffered everywhere he went. And the Lord Jesus, how would you like to have this call from the Lord Jesus? He tells Ananias, this is my chosen vessel. Go to him because Ananias is saying, no, I don't want to go pray for him, Lord, because he's persecuted your people and put him in jail. And the Lord said, go, he's my chosen vessel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. What kind of a calling is that? I want the apostolic calling where I have more anointing than the 12 apostles put together. And I'm like, yeah. No. It's not about us at the end of the day. But realizing that is freedom. I can just tell you, you know, I'm, I'm not arrived. We don't arrive until we see him face to face. But in, just in my journey, I've chafed over a lot of things in my life that I look back on and I go, that was a waste of time and energy. 
things that seem hard at the moment, when I look at them in the light of Jesus and who he is and the more that I see the treasure. So, you know, this is my obsession with the word of God because this is the biography of God, his autobiography. This tells who he really is. And the more that I gaze at the words on this page that are filled with life, the more I see the treasure and the more it moves me, the more it motivates me, the more it makes me want to release all the things that are actually lighter than air that have no substance at all to them. They really don't. And to sow into eternity. I want to do that. I want to do that. So is there, here's, here's a question that I want to answer and debunk. There's a mindset in the body of Christ that there's a difference between being a normal Christian and then being a disciple. True or false? You already know the answer. It's false. What does the New Testament teach? Does the New Testament teach that every Christian is a disciple? It does. It teaches that every Christian is a disciple. The, the disciples, this is Acts 11.36, the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. So they're the same thing, y'all. Disciples, Christians, Jesus' call to discipleship. This is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, and that's where I was trying to go, but then I got lost in my own stuff. That, this is pretty common, so sorry. Um, Bonhoeffer says at the beginning of his book called Cult of Discipleship, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. But here's the beauty. What comes after laying your life down is resurrection. We want the power, we want the fire, but we don't want the crucifixion. And they, that doesn't happen. The crucifixion leads to the resurrection. Amen. So, so are Christians all disciples? Can, can I just talk with you for a minute? Because I hear this a lot. From I'm around a lot of young adults since I am one. Um, <laughs> they, there's, there's lots of talk, and I agree with it, about identity in, in Christ, our identity in Christ. And I've preached on it. I preach on it hot and heavy and spit, foam and all that stuff. I, I, I believe in it. And the things that, Paul, you shared here this morning, you know we share a common heart and, and belief and all that. Look, if y'all need to get grounded in, in relationship with the Lord and his love for you, that he's for you 100%, not 95. Because if he gave his own son and didn't spare him, how will he not also with him freely give you all things? He's for you. The, the, the quicker we realize that and the quicker we actually embrace that the Lord loves us so deeply more than we can comprehend then the better off we are then here's here's the thing it's hard to take the message of discipleship if you don't know the message of the fatherhood of god for you you, you it's really hard because then you feel like it's all just hard struggle and work and it's, and it's not supposed to be that way the way that i got saved is check my watch so all right you said no good all right we're ruled by Christ and not the watch. Okay. <clears throat> there it goes. Um, when the Lord drew me to himself, I was a complete heathen. We were staunch heathens in my family. Um, very convicted about it. And we were about seeking our own pleasure and um, wasting our life on trivial things. And that, that was our mantra. Uh, not in so many words, but that's what we actually did. So when, when the Lord apprehended me in just a crazy way where he just came in to my living room, I won't tell you the whole story, but it's pretty crazy. 
I never heard the gospel in my life. I'd never been to church in any meaningful way. I might have gone on Christmas Eve. The only thing I ever remember a preacher saying was he was telling a story about his dog. Like, I never heard the gospel of, in my life. I never read the scripture. Um, and, and when I was 15 years old, my mom, who was, had a relationship with the Lord when she was a little girl, and then went full-blown materialist, uh, pretty much. But she still had a little soft place in her heart for Jesus. Um, she said at the kitchen table one night, it was just me, her and I there. I don't know where my brothers and my dad were, but they weren't there. And she said, you, Barry, she said, you, you believe in God, don't you? And uh, I said, I guess so. And when I said that, the Holy Spirit came on me like a cloud of electricity, and I was like, I'm like, what is happening here? And I went up to my room, and I'm stumbling around, and I'm like, what is going on? I paced up there for like 15 minutes looking at my records, and I'm like, what is going on? And I went back. I had a sense that it was God, but I didn't know. I went back down. I told my mom, I think I need to get baptized or something. It's the only religious thing that I knew. And so she goes, oh, well, I've got a friend who's got a pastor. And she said, let me call her. So she called her friend who had a pastor, and the, she called her pastor, and he said that he would come over to our house. I think it was a Tuesday night, if I remember right. And he would come over to the house and talk to me, because I'm in this state of what's happening to me. And so they all end up coming, and my mom invites this lady and her friends to come too, and they're going to have a little tea party there. And the pastor sits down, and here it's really awkward for me, all these ladies, this pastor here, I'd never heard the gospel in my life. I'm sitting in the chair, and he proceeds to tell me the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he died for my sins, and that I need to repent and turn to him and give him my life. And he rose from the dead to prove that my sins were forgiven. And I'd never heard that before, and I didn't understand it fully. And he said to me, do you believe this? And I said, I do. I don't know why, but, but I do. I do believe it. And he took me out in back of our house, and he baptized me in the swimming pool. And that was the beginning of my journey. I didn't, never read the Bible. I did not have any peers except ones who went out drinking and chasing girls with me and having fake IDs like I did when I was a kid and going in and just getting blitzed and, and being a total fool, wasting my life for stupid things. And so immediately my parents had already promised me that they would not move again because we moved six times previous to that. My dad worked for IBM and we called it I've Been Moved back in those days, if you're familiar. So uh, I lived all over the country and he, they promised me we're not going to move again until you graduate high school. Well, I was only in 10th grade then. And lo and behold, my dad comes home a couple of weeks after this and says, I know we said this. But he said, I got this promotion offer that I cannot turn down. We're going to move to Connecticut. I said, what? We're going to move to Connecticut? So we moved out into the boondocks on the edge of a nature preserve there. And the Lord was just taking me. And I had a dirt bike. And I rode out into the woods. And I did not know what to do or how to pray. And I used to go out beside this big pond. And there was a giant rock as big as this section out there on the edge of the pond. And I laid there flat on my face. And I just cried out to God. I said, God, can you help me? I'm so messed up. I've lived for just getting drunk on the weekends and chasing girls and smoking weed. That's all I lived for. I didn't know anything else. And I just kept crying out. And he, I didn't hear his voice, but I know he was answering, I can help you. I can help you. And I kept crying out. And my mother 
her testimony was that she thought I was having a nervous breakdown losing my mind because I would go out there and I would cry out to God and I would come back and just go into my room and I'd cry out to God in my room. I mean, he was just drawing me to himself. He was cleaning me up. I was twisted like a pretzel. But God has the ability to take that pretzel and strengthen it. So amazing. He rescued me. And he revealed to me in that time. Here's, here's where I wanted to go with this story that was kind of a little bit around the back. He so revealed his love to me in that time. He would pour out his love on me and I would weep and cry. I was ashamed for anybody to see me. My eyes were red so much. I've had situations in my life several times where I cried so hard that I broke blood vessels in my eyes and they were black. It's so crazy. I'm like not this hugely emotive guy in that kind of a way. But the Lord poured his love out of me and he began to wash me in my soul. All that crooked junk. He began to straighten me out. He began to speak to me and train me by the Holy Spirit. Whereas a friend in high school invited me to go to a Boston concert. If you all know the, the band Boston back in the day. More than a feeling. No, I'm not going to sing it. So, uh, hey, you want, I got tickets to the Boston concert. You want to go up there with me? I said, yeah, dude, that's something. He goes, I got some really good lumbo, some Colombian weed. You want to ask, oh, man, that'll be a great time. And the Holy Spirit went like this to me. No. He said, the Holy Spirit spoke to me. He goes, I don't like that. You don't like Colombian? <laughs> and, and he began to clean my life and clean my desires. He began to change me, and he washed over me. He loved me back to life. I mean, I was red and wrinkled, but I was alive. And he began to draw me to himself. I had a journal, and I didn't know what was happening, but out on the rock, things would come to me, and I'd, I'd write them down in there. And my brother came home from college. He was at Cornell, and he came back, and he had gotten saved at the same time, and we didn't know it. And we started comparing notes on a Christmas and said, no, dude, are you serious? I got saved too. He goes, no, I was so miserable and lonely in college and somebody told me to read the Gospel of John and I did and Jesus revealed himself to me and now I've given my life to him. I'm saying, this is crazy. What's happening? It's an invasion. <laughs> and he said, what's this? It's my journal on my desk. I said, oh, it's just stuff I've written down, prayers and different stuff that, you know, when I was out on the rock. And he starts to read it and he goes, do you know that like, a lot of this is like word-for-word word quotations from the book of Psalms. I go, no, I've never read the Bible. I don't have one. He's like, well, it is. I was like, oh. God is God all by himself. <laughs> he took the biggest knucklehead in the world. And he said, you're mine. You're mine. And I'm going to love you back to life. He loved me so well that the truth is, this is the truth now. And I'm encouraging you. Because, see, for me, it was a blessing for me that I was never raised in church in this way. Because church people are some of the most insecure and doubting of the love of God of all people because they're so performance oriented. But I never doubted his love for me. Because I was totally twisted and corrupted from the beginning. And he took me out of that sovereignly by his own choosing and loved me back to life. Corrected me on the smoking my dope. All of the junk that I was in is so crooked. I was like a pretzel, I'm telling you. I knew 
He loved me because he demonstrated it to me. And I honestly, this is, this is true. I have never doubted it in my whole Christian walk, which has been a huge blessing for me. But here's what I found out. When I started going to church a year and a half later in Assembly God Church, I found to my amazement that the people in the church were constantly questioning and wrestling whether God really loved them or not. I'm like, y'all are 15 times cleaner than me. You're so straight compared to me. What in the world? You, you, don't, you don't know God loves you. But they had a struggle with that. And, and when you struggle with believing the love of God, that the love that God has for you, then you struggle with everything else in your Christian life. You struggle with the whole sacrifice thing because you think he's trying to take something from you. But like the rich young ruler, he's trying to give you everything. If you release the little thing that holds you and binds you, he just says, just release it to me. I'm going to give you 10 million times more than what you released. But we're like, no, that's mine. He's like, just give it to me. It's hindering your heart. See, this is at the heart of discipleship. We're not afraid to release everything to Jesus because he loved us so well. And the reality is for all of us in this room, he has loved us really, really well. We just don't perceive it because we've shut it out. We've listened to the chatter of the enemy. We need to receive and believe in the love of God before we can actually walk as disciples. Because the call to discipleship is a call to come and die. But honestly, it gives me joy. I'm so happy. Yes, because I know how you are. If you tell me to release something to you, you've got something better for me in the treasure. If you release this dumb thing that has no value, then I'm going to give you something that has eternal value. That's a good God. I love him for that. The overcomers in the book of Revelation, are they an elite brand of Christian, do you think? Have you ever looked at that? I've looked up all of the references. This is what I do. I, I'm just this numbers guy. I want to look up every verse. If I'm studying a topic, I take every single verse on the, in the Bible on that and take it out. This is, this is what teachers do. Um, because I want to know. I just want to understand. The overcomer in the book of Revelation, I'm going to give you the, the short of it. It's every Christian. It's not the elite. So here's the point I'm trying to make. There's not normal Christians and then disciples, that you're actually the super committed and dedicated. No, the, the reality is the deal on the front end of the gospel is you have to lose your life for my sake in order to find it. So our problem is our fear of loss. Instead of knowing that the Father loves us when he says release, and we go, of course, because this is going to end up for my good. You're actually going to give me something that matters instead of this trivial thing that I'm holding on to. So we release it. The overcomers in the book of Revelation are all Christians. How do I know that? Look at Revelation chapter 2. I want to look at the letters real quickly here. We're talking about identity, and I'm going to get into that just a little bit. Revelation chapter 2. You're familiar. These are letters that Jesus dictated after he was raised from the dead, right? 
This is after the plan of redemption has been consummated. And he's writing letters to his churches, and he's pointing out to them the things that they did well. Jesus is gracious. He commends what we do well, and then he's calling out the things that he doesn't like. So we should always ask the question, Lord, what is it, what is it that you don't like? And what is it that you do like? Because our job as believers is to give him what he wants. That's our job as a church. We just want to give you what you want. Revelation chapter 2, the overcomers. How do I know that the overcomers are every believer? Well, all I have to do is to read the statements at the end of each of these letters. This is the first one to Ephesus. He who has an ear is verse 7 of chapter 2. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And in these letters, Jesus is pretty firm. Would you agree with me? He's pretty firm. He's going out. He's in the midst of his church and he's going, this is what I like. This is what I don't like. He has every right to do that because he gave his life for us. So we should be good with that. He, he, he has the freedom to tell us what he likes and what he doesn't like in us. Right? Okay. So he says, the church of Ephesus, we know that story. I'm not going to go through all the letter there. But verse 7, let's just look at the end here where he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. That phrase, let him hear, actually might be better translated, you better hear. You better hear. Like, this is serious stuff. Let him who has an ear, you better hear this. What the Spirit is saying to the churches, that's a present tense thing. The Spirit's still saying this. To him who overcomes. Who's that? The elite, Lord? Is that the, the superstar missionaries or preachers? No. I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. What's he saying? This is what every believer are. If you're not an overcomer, at the end of the day, I'm going to put you on a little bit of a wrestle, but if you're not an overcomer in the revelation sense, then you're not actually a true believer. There's really three categories of people in, in the kingdom of God. There's, there's true believers who are disciples, who are overcomers, there are those who are outside the kingdom who are not part of Jesus. And then there are those who are pretenders. There's those three categories. And Jesus is always weeding out the pretenders. He always is. Because it's merciful to get called out as a pretender while we still have breath in our lungs. It's merciful to be called out as a pretender while we still have breath in our lungs to repent, to turn, and to receive everything that he has and to release everything that we have. So he's talking to believers there because only believers are going to be in the paradise of God, right? Right? All right, look at verse 11 of chapter 2. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. What's the second death? What is it? It's the lake of fire. So he who overcomes isn't going to the lake of fire. So that better be all Christians, right? Are any Christians going to the lake of fire? Okay, I'm trying to make the point here that he's calling for overcomers. So when Jesus comes and brings correction, what disciples do is that they make that correction, and he calls that overcoming. They receive his correction, and they make that correction. That's overcoming. That's what disciples do. Whatever you say, I'm going to do that. And then chapter 3 and verse 5 says this, he who overcomes will thus be clothed with white garments and I will not erase his name from the book of life and I will confess him before my father and before his angels. Is that the elite believers or is that every believer? If your name's erased from the book of life, what are you? You're lost. 
Okay? So the overcomers are regular believers. And then chapter 21, I want to show you this real quickly, and then we'll go back to one of the most underquoted verses in the Scripture, which is in the book of Revelation also. Um, chapter 21, verses 7 through 9. Love this when it's getting down to where the new Jerusalem is descending the new heaven and new earth. He who overcomes, verse 7 of chapter 21, will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Is that the elite, or is that every believer? Y'all are quiet. It's every believer is an overcomer. He who overcomes will inherit these things. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and liars will have their part in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now, let's go to a verse that we all know, and it's Revelation chapter 12 and verse 11. And I say it's the most partially quoted verse in the Bible. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And we usually put the period on it there, or that's where we end the quote. But it's not, it doesn't end there because it's talking about those that are actually real believers and they did not love their life even unto death. You go, well, the Lord's not calling me to be a martyr in Iraq or North Korea. No, probably not. He's just calling you to be a martyr every day. And to take all of your own preferences and to say, Lord, no, not my will, but yours be done. What do you want me to do with my life? What do you want me to do with my time? So the biggest stewardship that we probably have is our time. What, what, what does he want us to do with it? Are we doing that thing? Or are we doing our thing? So the whole identity, um, and this, this will be a little wrestle in this section. The whole identity thing, there's, there's the identity, there's the issues of identity that speak of our authority and our privilege, which I love. I preach on them hard. Our sonship, our authority as believers in Christ those kinds of things, the things that God has called us to, the things he's empowered us to do, the grace we have. I believe that we should preach those things hard, but that's only half of the wheel. The other part of our identity is our responsibility and our accountability. Words that speak into that. And I want to put out there to you that as a disciple, the word disciple is part of that other half of the wheel. We've tried to roll on the wheel. I've seen this, especially with young adults, is that they want to roll on the wheel of just tell me all the positive things. Tell me all the things that I am to God and how he delights me. And I love all that. I love it. I do love it. I preach hard on it. It's real. But listen, you can't roll on half of a wheel. The other half of the wheel of our identity is our responsibility and our accountability. And if I read the Bible right, those are the parts of our identity that are going to matter when we stand before Jesus. Were you faithful with what I gave you? So, easy answer question. What is the most referenced part of our identity in the New Testament? It's, 
It's discipleship. It's being a disciple. The word disciple is used 260 times in the New Testament. It's just a huge number. Why so much? Because he's making an emphasized point. Look, th- this, is, this is not optional. You know what number two is? Y'all, y'all won't like this. What's the second most reference to the people of God as far as what our identity is? And this is the bottom half of that wheel. Anybody have a guess? What is it? It's doulos, which is slave. It is the Greek word for slave. And so I'm glad that Paul brought out in John 15 there where Jesus said, I no longer call you slaves. But, why, but what was he saying? He was saying, I no longer call you slaves because a slave doesn't know what their master's doing, but I'm going to disclose it to you. In other words, Jesus doesn't negate slavery, and I'm going to show you why that's obvious. He doesn't negate slavery as a part of our identity. What he does is he takes the dominance and the brutality out of it. He's going, you're going to partner with me, but don't think that means that I don't own you. You're going to partner with me, and I'm going to include you, and I'm going to use you to accomplish my purposes, but don't, mean, don't think that that means that you own stuff, because you don't. Doulos is the Greek word for slave. Most of our English translations today, there's a few exceptions, but not very many, change it to either servant or New American Standard tries with a half measure of bond servant, but those aren't really honest. The word doulos means a slave. The Roman Empire had a massive amount of slaves. Everybody knew it was a slave. There are places in the Roman Empire where a third of the population were slaves. So the idea behind slavery, what's he saying? Well, Jesus said that. So, brother, then that's, yeah, but here's the thing that you've got to take into consideration. After Jesus said that, I no longer call you slaves, every single one of his apostles called themselves slaves of Christ. And all of the people of God collectively are called slaves of Christ. Right? I can give you verses, several verses, that say that. You are, there's Romans 6.22, just two examples. You're freed from sin and enslaved to God. 1 Corinthians 7.22, For he who was called in the Lord while a slave is Christ's freed man. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. So how many of you were called by Jesus when you were a slave? None, none of us. So that means we're Christ slaves, right? If we were called as freed, we're not slaves. So here's the thing. Here's the turnaround. We are Christ slaves. It's all through the New Testament. Every, almost every single writer, including John, James, Jude, Paul, multiple times, called themselves the slave of Christ. What's the point of that? That sounds like bondage and brutality. Here's the same look that I see on your face is the same reason why the translators of the English Bible changed that word. Because it, it doesn't go over. It goes over like a lead balloon. No, don't, don't say slave. They don't like that. That's politically insensitive. Jesus is not really concerned about the politically insensitive very much. He wants us to get the principle, and we lose the power of it. If we get rid of slave, we lose the power of what he's saying. You belong to me. Kenneth Weiss says this word doulos means one whose will is swallowed up in the will of their master. One whose will is swallowed up in the will of his master. And that's what we are. It's part of our identity. It's not the whole identity, thank God, but it is part of it. And it's so freeing. I can't tell you how many times in my life where being a slave of Christ has been so freeing and made me laugh out loud I was so happy. 
What are you talking about? When he told me and he impressed on my wife and I, I want you to have a larger family and have more kids. I won't tell all the story of that. But it was a super big wrestle for me. We had two and I was not doing well in my business. And he didn't care. He's like, I want you to do what I want you to do. And then I was like, yeah, but I've given you these five reasons. He's like, I'm not buying it. But here's the thing. If you're a slave, it's not your responsibility to provide for yourself. It's not your responsibility to come up with a plan and the agenda. You don't have to be super clever. You just have to respond in obedience and say, okay, okay. And, and I told a story yesterday, and this is a true thing, and this is my testimony, and this is why I say it, because it's so powerful to me. We had seven children. I was surgically fixed, so we couldn't have any more. Does it subtly say that? And then he dealt with me until I got a reversal. And then we had five more children. And I was terrified that I wasn't going to be able to provide for my kids in any way. And the Lord said, it's not your problem. Yours is to obey me. Mine is to provide for what I call you to do. And he said, I'm going to take care of everything that has to do with your children. I remember so clearly. I was in the shower, and I was just sweating it. I worked my tail off and come home, had a landscape business, and I'm in the shower. God, what am I going to do? How am I going to take care of my kids? He's like, I'm going to take care of everything that has to do with your kids. I'm like, say that again. Say it again. Please say it again. Like, I wanted him to keep saying that to me 24-7. Like, I, I know. He's like, no, I'm going to take care of it. I looked at my Social Security statement years later when, when it came in the mail. It used to come in the mail when there was mail. Um, okay, I've dated myself. Anyway, you get your statement, and it shows your in, you know, all the years and your income. And when I looked at that, I started to bawl my eyes out because I looked there, and I saw when each of my children were born, my income went boom, 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 boom. I said, dang, I should have had more kids. <laughs> That's so real. And it takes the pressure off of having to have the provision for the thing that God calls us to do because he's the owner and we are the slave and that's good. I'm so happy. I can't tell you how happy I am to be the slave of Christ. I'm serious. I can't tell you how happy I am. When something goes wrong, something goes wrong at church and ministry and everything seems to be like it's going to melt down. I'm like, Lord, this is yours, isn't it? I'm just your slave. You take care of this because this is yours. It's not mine. I don't own any of it. I remember a time in my business where God gave me such favor when I started having the kids he wanted me to have. This is a real thing. He said, why should I give you provision so that you can squander it and, and live a higher lifestyle? I've got a purpose in mind that's eternal. I'm like, oh. So he began to bless, and he gave me such favor with my customers. I don't know if you guys in business can relate to this, but I just knew that he gave me favor with somebody, and I got that job. I, I just knew it. I would just know in my heart, oh, Lord, you breathed on them. You, you made them like me, even though I'm an idiot. You made them like me. <laughs> like, and so I'm going to get that job. And, and it would happen. It just happened consistently. And so I started just expecting it. And I remember one week when I had a few jobs lined up, and then they canceled out unexpectedly. They just canceled on me. And I was like, Ugh. I was just really troubled by that. And I just began to pray 
about that. And as I'm praying about it, the Lord showed me a picture of myself, and I was like this, and I had my little fingers curled like this. He said, this is just a reminder to you that this is not your business, that this is not your money, that this is mine. Uncurl your fingers and let that go. And so now I do this all the time. I open with an open hand. We receive offering, it's open hand because it's not mine. This is, this is easy to talk about, but it's worked out in increments one step at a time where the Lord deals with things and we go, okay, I release that to you. It's not mine. It's so freeing. It's so freeing not to own anything. I can't tell you how good it is not to own anything. It's so great. You don't have to fix it. You don't have to worry if it burns down. You don't have to worry. You just release it. You own it. And I can tell you this is truth in raising my kids. In times where there was trouble, things happening where you just feel unsettled about what's happening in your kid's life, even though you're careful to raise them, I found this. And this happened just recently, actually, with our youngest daughter who's grown. We my wife and I just felt, we just felt a little troubled about something that was going on with her. And we just, we got down literally on a Friday and we prayed together, my wife and I, for like 30 minutes and just, Lord, she's yours. We release this back to you. And would you come in here, wherever there's blindness, would you open her eyes and would you just reveal this to her? And the very next night, she came home. She goes, the Lord showed me. I won't tell you all the details of it. The Lord showed me this, and I'm, I'm out. And she, she did a 180. We're like, that was quick. That's so amazing. But I've seen that pattern happen when my kids were little. When they were older, I've seen that same pattern happen. I had one of my sons. I should have put my watch back on. You all want me to put my watch back on? Um, I'm going to wind up here, maybe. Um, he, he was hanging around with peers that were liars. Actually, it was his cousins. And one of them had a lying spirit, and he would just lie when he shouldn't even lie. And I don't know if you know people like that. And it began to rub off on him, and he began to tell lies. And I'm like, no, that, that doesn't work in our house. We, we tell the truth here. We love the truth here. And so we knew that. And so I just felt like the Lord put it in my heart. Okay, we're going to sit down and have a family Bible study. And we had a family Bible study about being truth tellers and telling the truth and not lying. And the last verse that I got to was there, in the one that I just read in Revelation chapter 21, where all liars will have their place in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. <clears throat> I said, do you see where this road leads? You can think it's cute and funny now and that you're manipulating people and getting their way. Most liars don't realize that everybody else knows they're lying. Isn't that crazy? Because they've deceived themselves. So I, I get amazed by that. Like, don't you know that we know you're lying? It's just so crazy. So my son got impacted. We had a little time of prayer there. The Lord impacted his heart. And he completely turned. I would say he was probably maybe eight years old then. He is the most honest person that I know in the world, and that's the truth. He does not lie. He will, he will indict himself. He will, he'll tell the truth about himself, even if it's, if it's the most awkward and embarrassing. He's the most honest person, but God did a work in him. So this is the great thing about not owning your business, not owning your house, not owning your money, not owning your kids. Not owning your own destiny and your own future. And this makes us secure because God is trustworthy and we're not. 
So it's so good to be a slave. I know that language, does that language chafe you when you say slave? That's just something about that just chafes you. But here's the point. A slave that Jesus is getting about, not that he's going to brutalize us or that he's going to demean us, but that he owns us and that we recognize his ownership. But in recognizing his ownership, we also recognize his complete care and provision over everything that has to do with us. So freeing. I love being a slave. I love being a disciple of Jesus. And I love looking at the treasure. And I want to finish with Philippians chapter 3. Breathe a sigh of relief, y'all. Landing the plane here. Philippians 3. These, these verses are so powerful in my life. Philippians 3, verse 7. You're familiar with them. You've heard them and read them multiple times, most of you. Whatever things. This is Paul. This is, this is three years when he wrote Philippians, three years before his martyrdom. He's very close to the end of his life. Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. This is the language of a disciple and a slave. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. This is... This is a disciple who's looking at the treasure for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain what? That I may gain Christ. He's my treasure and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith that I may, verse 10, this rocks me to the core. Three years from Paul's martyrdom when he gave his life. How many would like to put your resume up against Paul's as far as your spiritual walk? Nobody. It's impeccable. That I may know him. And I get stuck right there every time. You, you don't know him? You don't know him? Yeah, I, I do, but I don't. I read an article recently by National Geographic, which I wouldn't recommend in most cases, but they're talking about the ocean here, so I, I'm okay with it. They said that 80%, this is a few months ago, 80% of the oceans in our world are unexplored and unmapped. 80%. We have more knowledge of the surface of Mars than we do of our own oceans. They're so vast and they're so deep. And I think that's what Paul's grasping here. Yeah, I've been to Sand Key Beach and I've been to Daytona Beach and I've walked on the beaches in lots of places, but I can't say, I know the ocean. Oh, yeah, if you have a question about the ocean, just come and ask me. I know the ocean. I've walked on ocean since I was a little kid. I lived a mile from the ocean in Los Angeles and would go there every weekend with my dad in the Pacific Ocean and go body surfing and surf riding on the waves. I know the ocean. No, you don't. You might have swum in it. You might have put your feet in it. But it's so vast. I think this is what Paul's saying. I am not going to say, I know him. I'm going to say, my longing is, I know that even with all my experience, and with, even with Paul receiving his gospel, 
personally from the Lord Jesus Christ, how would you like to have that happen? Where he revealed the gospel to you personally. And all the encounters that he had with angels and demons and all the planting of churches and the power that happened and raising the boy from the dead. You think I'm long-winded. Paul preached all night long until the boy fell asleep and fell down. Then he said, you're not going to interrupt my sermon. Come back up. I'm going to raise you from the dead. Sit there on the ground and listen. I'm going to finish up. Still got two points left. That's a pretty amazing resume. But he said, look, I can write down everything I know about Christ here. This paper. I, I know him, but I don't know him. There's so much more. There's so much more. This is at the heart of a disciple. It's that you long to know the more that you don't know about Jesus. There's so much. We know little tidbits here and there. People sometimes tell me, oh, you know the scripture so well, and I just laugh out loud. This is how much I know of the scripture. Because you measure how much you know of the scripture by how much of it is actually in practice and embodied in your life. And I'm constantly finding things that I go, ooh, I may know him. Come on, this is at the heart of discipleship, is that you recognize the treasure is so amazingly vast that nothing compares to it. Let's be disciples. Let's hunger and thirst to know him. I've walked with Jesus for 45 years since he rescued me that day. It's actually been 47. And I can tell you, it keeps getting more amazing to me, but I also realize how little I know and how little I've experienced, and it makes me long for him and hunger for him. And I want every part of my life to be rightly aligned to him because that's all that matters. Bow your heads with me. We're going to pray. Father, we love you. Just engage with your heart to the Lord. Lord, we love you. You're so incredibly amazing you are the treasure you are our heart's desire and our heart's longing and lord those areas that have been covered over by other desires desires for other things would you clear that debris away from our hearts so that we can just long and pant for you alone Lord, we've allowed our hearts to be cluttered with so many other secondary and peripheral things. The cares of life, the pleasures of life, the deceitfulness of riches. All of those things that you say in your word, keep the crop from coming up and being fruitful. We repent and we lay those things down. And we ask you to remove the clutter from our hearts and to get us refocused in this season on what really matters. Lord, we ask for mercy. This is a season of grace in this body. I felt this so strongly yesterday with the men and praying with them. This is a season in this body where the Lord is pouring out grace to get everything right. He's not condemning. He's not fault finding. He's releasing from bondages. 
He's giving freedom that has never been known before. He's sending in fresh air to breathe. He's lifting to higher levels. He's raising expectations because His intent is to fulfill the longings of the heart. So let the longings be great. I feel like the Lord says, let your longing rise up and be greater than it has been. For this is a season where the Lord will meet you and fill your longing and exceed your expectations. But if you only long for a little, then you'll only get a little. Pour out your grace, Holy Father, upon your children. You have called this body of people to be a light in this community and to be a praise to your glory. Would you do everything in deal with every detail that needs to be dealt with, Lord. Would you give us the grace to uncurl our fingers and to release everything to you and to really trust you and to really release it. 